Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlux's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlux partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherluxvip.com. With a love for dance that began at just three years old, Pyle Kadakia founded the Saar Dance Company in 2009 to raise awareness of Indian dance. Four years later, Pyle's passion for being active led her to create ClassPass, the subscription service that gives people access to not just one gym, but all the best fitness classes in the area, leading the company through meteoric growth In just over five years, Pyle has created a global business valued at over half a billion US dollars. Listed in Fortunes 40 Under 40, Pyle, welcome to your Sherlock's success stories. Thank you for having me. Half a billion US dollars. Wow, that's quite a number. We'll come on to that. But let's start with your education. What did that look like? You're Indian American? I'm Indian American. My parents immigrated to the States in the 70s. Education was very important to them. It was, you know, center of my upbringing. I went to MIT in Boston. I studied a bit of engineering, a bit of business while I was there. My true passion during that time, as well as my childhood, was dance. So I would always dance through my college years. Uh, That was a very big part of it. Amazing. Was your mother a dancer? My mother wasn't a dancer, but she always says if she had the permission to dance as much as I did, she would have. But it was my mom's best friend, actually, who taught me to dance. And what kind of dance? Are we talking traditional Indian dance? Yeah. So it was uh, different forms of Indian folk dance and classical dance that I grew up doing in the basements of my own house and my friends' houses. And were other people as excited about it as you were? You know, it was interesting. When I was growing up, you know, most people didn't actually understand my culture, where I came from. And for me, having, you know, this place I could go to that helped me understand the roots of, you know, where my parents came from was really important to me. And so dance sort of really became that place for me where I could understand, you know, who I was. Yeah, you did a degree in engineering, dance engineering. It seemed like a a natural path. So (laughs) there are obviously two sides to you. There's the business side, there's the creative side. Mm -hmm. How did you end up doing engineering? Was that an easy decision? I was following in the footsteps of my sister. You know, I think I always looked up to her and she studied operations research at Columbia University. And I thought, hey, let me go and do the same. I think dance I knew would just always be in my life. I think it took me a really long time to really even focus on my creative side. I don't think when I grew up, I thought I was a creative or an artist in any way. I thought I just loved to dance. And I think I later in my life, I realized it's my creativity that really was going to help me, you know, build class pass and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And so what did you do after you left Massachusetts Institute of Technology? Presumably you'd been dancing throughout your time there. Yep. I had like two focuses. I basically focused on dance and my schoolwork. I would only allow myself to dance if I did well in school. I was very disciplined about that. Were you doing it professionally or were you just dancing for yourself at home? Yeah. I started a dance troupe on campus, which still exists today, which is really nice. It's an 
Indian fusion dance troupe that would be for anyone who wanted to explore sort of Indian dance fused with other forms of dance. Because I also trained in like jazz, ballet, and other forms of dance. So I wanted to always blend our cultures together because right. I was Indian and American. Yeah. And then after school, I went to Bain & Company. Right. So I was a consultant, a management uh-huh. consultant. I worked in a lot of different industries, solving different problems from, you know, cost optimization to figuring out growth strategies for, you know, CPG companies in the U.S. So I did that for about three years. And did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it because it was kind of like a mini MBA. I learned so much about business and the people I worked with were exceptional. I mean, till this day, my network from Bain has helped me so much in building my own company. Many of the people in my own class have become entrepreneurs who built large, you know, consumer brands as well in the US. And we've all kind of stayed friends and have had each other to sort of lean on. And I think that's so important. And so do you think for other people that want to become entrepreneurs, but want some kind of training, would you advise management consultancy as a smart route to take? Yeah, I mean, I think it's cheaper really than an MBA, important. you get paid to do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think it's really important to work in the real world before you start your own business. I think when I first got out of college, I would have thought, hey, oh my God, let me go and be an entrepreneur. And I think I kind of did want to start something. I think it was probably more the dance company. But I think when I worked in the real world, I learned how people worked, right? I learned how teams worked. I learned how things get done, you know, whether it be the politics in the room or anything like that, you have to know how the real world works. And I am really grateful to my experience at Bain for that. And so I do recommend, you know, getting some experience, I think, whether it's in the corporate world or, you know, doing consulting, but you can't get stuck in it. I think that's the other part because all these jobs, they want to put you on a treadmill of Mm. what success starts looking like. And if that's not what you want, it's hard to sometimes get off the train. Yeah, you've got to be focused. Exactly. This is a means to an end. Yeah. And when you look back on your time at Bain, what other takeaways do you have? I think Bain is one of the best consulting firms in the world. And I think some of the things that, you know, they teach you in the earliest days are things like zero defect, which means like, how do you learn to work and catch your mistakes in a really quick manner? That's how the real world works. How do you tell me? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like a process of like, you know, making sure you're being self aware enough to recheck numbers, make sure before you're writing an email, you've done your research and that it makes sense, right? You're writing an email to your boss. And, you know, you're not just giving them a bunch of information, you're giving them the right headline. So we also believe in this principle of being 80-20, which is that 20% of like the work really helps answer 80% of it. And then you could do 80% of the work to answer the last 20. (laughs) So applicable to so many things. Yeah. And it's so funny because so many people want to do more work and you're like, you can actually get a really long way with 20% of the work and have like a hypothesis on what the answer is going to be. So I feel like I learned a lot of things like that. I've learned how to really focus in on being hyper-prioritized, you know, focusing on what's important, my inbox, emails, all of that, like email etiquette, which I think is so important in this day and age because it's the way we all communicate. Mm. So a lot of those skills where I think were completely helpful in what I ended up doing. Well, another time I might tap you up for a few more of those skills. <laughs> anyway, you were focused on being, being a means to an end. You didn't get stuck on the treadmill. What happened next? I almost got stuck on the treadmill. I think looking back, it's obviously easier to say, you know, most of my friends at that point after three years at Bain were going off to business school, which is once again, the standard path. Mm. You go to business school and then you come back to Bain and you get on the trajectory to become a partner. 
And I remember looking around and I was still dancing at the time. So I had found like a local dance company within New York to really dance with. And I mean, I would invite my entire office to my dance performances, <laughs> even when I was that young. And at some point, I just felt that if I was going to dance, this was my time because I just thought, you know, I'm young right now, I can continue to keep performing. And I don't know when I get older, if I'm going to be able to. So I wanted to find a job that was a bit more stable in the sense of I had more predictability over my hours. I think when I was doing consulting, by the time I was in my third or fourth year, there was unpredictable travel, unpredictable meetings, you know, you're in client services. It made me unable to be able to really have the discipline I wanted with dance, be able to commit to performances I wanted to do to even choreograph. So I made this decision, which was to keep working. I got a job in the music industry. It's funny because I don't think of it as like, oh, I wasn't investing in my career. I was making the right choice for me to be able to continue to do what I felt was my magic in the world which was dance. And so I got this job and, you know, I had a little bit more of like a predictive schedule. I knew how to do my work and I could leave by six or seven and I would dance every night. I would do classes and I started my dance company then. And so were you quite clear when you left Bain that you were going to start a dance company? Was that the idea? I had no idea I was going to. I think for me, I fell into it because what I started doing was getting a few of my friends together who are all incredible dancers. My network of my South Asian friends at the time were all dancers. We just all loved it. And so I started just renting space. We started working on choreography. Choreography for who? For our dance company. So I was choreographing different pieces that we could one day present. You know, I didn't know exactly where yet. I was just putting us together, creating some art and seeing where it could go. And we ended up getting into this really big performance in New York. It was the Battery Downtown Dance Festival, and which was about six months like after we had started. And we ended up on the cover of the art section of the New York Times, which was unbelievable for a dance company. I mean, everyone wants that image. I didn't even have a website. You know, I was still working and this was something I was doing on the side. And it was little signs like that that told me to believe in myself. And I even remember on that day, I was studying for the GMATs because my dad wanted me to go back to school. He was okay with this like few year, Mm -hmm. you know, hiatus to have this other job. But he was like, you got to get back on the treadmill. And I was going to say to you, I mean, you know, you went to MIT, you went to Bain, you potentially had a really successful corporate career with great remuneration. And you were giving it up to pursue your passion. Were you at all conflicted? In that. I mean, I was always responsible. Like, I still had a job, right? Like, I was still working. I still had a salary at the time. I was literally doing all this dance stuff at my free hours. I basically had two jobs. You know, I had nothing else going on in my life aside working and dancing. The weekends were all full of dance things. The nights were all full of dance, you know, rehearsals. And then I would go to work during the day. You know, I think my dad was just at the point where he was like, okay, when are you getting your next degree? You know, because I think he just wanted to make sure that I was, you know, still progressing in the standards of how the system worked at the time. I remember on that day, I threw away my GMAT books when I saw the New York Times article. I just was like, this isn't what I want to do. There was no part of me that wanted to go to business school. My parents are like the most unbelievable people in the world. I think I just realized I had to make a decision that felt authentic to me. Your parents moved to the US in the 70s. In the 70s. What was your father's career? My parents were both chemists. 
So really had, into science. They yeah. had high ambitions for their children. Yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, and like I said, everything they did in their lives was so my sister and I could have a good education and, you know, have stability as we got older. So when we started doing things where, you know, you it started might dancing. not be... Your dad was like, Wait a second. come on, pile. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think he just wanted me to make sure that I would have security in all I did yeah. and that it would all work out. You yeah. know, they didn't want us to ever have to deal with any of the struggles they had to so deal with. So did he come along? Does the story then go that he came along to the Battery Park Music yeah. Festival and saw you perform and went, wow, you got to do this. So it's really interesting because that is similar to what happened. We had a show around the time and my dad came to it. I actually have this beautiful photo of him like giving us a standing ovation with everyone else. And I remember like the look on his face of being proud. And he calls me the next day and he's like, Beta, I looked up arts programs at Columbia. <laughs> like, oh, it, was, sweet. it was sweet because I think, you know, my dad was like, you're still going to get an education. <laughs> but it was, sweet that it, it was sweet, you know, and I think that that was when I started realizing like my parents will be on board with this. And my mom is also an unbelievable figure in my life. I mean, my mom taught me like women can do anything. Like I was never under a premonition in my life that like women weren't as capable as men because my mom ran my household. She worked the night shift. She always made sure like my sister and I were okay. If she was in front of a challenge from anything from like not knowing the norms of America because they came from India, she would find a way to learn and push through it. And she kind of gave me that feeling of it doesn't matter where I came from. It's about where I want to go and to work hard towards it. So she actually during this time also became a really influential person for me. So interesting how many successful women, you know, credit that to their moms. And actually I heard a talk the other day at Goldman Sachs and they said, you know, behind most successful female entrepreneurs is a woman really rooting for them, is a mother really rooting for them. Absolutely. I mean, I think my mom doesn't always know that like she had that impression on me, but she did. You know, she will now when she listens (laughs) to this. So your dad was behind you. You performed at the Battery Park Festival. It obviously all went really well. And you turn this into the Saw Dance Company, is that right? Yep. So we start doing bigger shows. We get great press endorsements. We have like Indian celebrities like Mira and I are really vouch for us. And once again, I'm doing this, by the way, while I have a full-time job. So we rented out this theater, the Alvin Ailey City Group Theater, which is a huge dance theater in the middle of Manhattan. It's like a thousand seater. And we sold out the show. It was like one of those things for me where actually my bosses from where I was working came to it. And they all were like, I didn't know if like you were going to come back to work the next day. Because they were like, you know, we manage artists here. Like you're an artist. So in an interesting way, I think I like went through my life always not fully realizing my potential. And Uh I think sometimes you have to take bets on yourself. And I think the dance side always reminded me of who I was. Mm. And that's why I always did it. Because when I was dancing, even though like at this point in my life where I felt like in my evenings, I was this like artist. And during the day, I was like an analyst crunching numbers (laughs) at work. And that led me to the next big shift in my life because I felt like I had two identities. And I always think like when you're living life and have two identities, something has to change because no one wants to wear like two jackets and be like, oh, I'm here, this person right now and this person at another time. And I started feeling that. Yeah, it's not that satisfying, is it? Yeah. So the dance company, did it make any money? I mean, you carried on working in the music business. I didn't do it to make money. The mission of my dance company was always to 
help make Indian culture and dance mainstream. Because I had faced a lot of racism growing up, it was really about the mission. It was a nonprofit in the sense of how do I make people understand where I come from, the beauty of my culture, mm-hmm. and also, you know, this Indian identity, an Indian American identity that we all have. And so it was really for the community. And I think what it did, though, in turn was it gave me so much confidence in being a leader, being able to put something together, you know, like lead a team, hire people when I needed to. I mean, to actually put this together in like my early 20s, I look back sometimes, I'm like, I wrote a 20K check out of my own savings account to this theater and I made it back, you know, and just being able to learn that I could Mm. do that was an incredible experience for me as an early entrepreneur. So Battery Park, what year are we in here? Uh, This is 2009. And you launched ClassPass in? 2011. 2011. So two years years of music industry, of Indian dance, and then ClassPass happens. Yeah. How? Why? Where did it start? As I was talking about, like, I started having this, like, double identity moment, which actually made me not want to dance, nor do well at work, because I just started feeling really exhausted in both, because I didn't know where either one was going to go. And I wasn't at the point where I was like, oh, let me go invest in the dance company to make it global. That wasn't really what I wanted to do. I felt really happy with, like, the way we were creating work. And then I also looked at my day job, and I was like, this doesn't feel right either, So that becomes another dilemma that I think most people in the world go through with their careers. And so I knew I needed to make a shift. And so two things happened around this time. I had gone out to San Francisco for a friend's birthday party. And at that time, this was eight years ago, entrepreneurship was not a thing. Like, you know, everyone wasn't an entrepreneur building companies. In SF, it was the case. And I met all these entrepreneurs and I was completely amazed and intrigued at what they were doing. And I remember asking them, I'm like, you do this full time? Like, it was just this concept at the time, at least for me, because most of my friends in New York were consultants in fashion and banking, like had these other jobs and one was creating companies. And I got really excited. And I remember thinking to myself, what if I could come up with an idea? Maybe I could try this. <sighs> so I gave myself two weeks. You know, I flew back. It was like a Sunday night red eye. On Monday, I was tired. So I didn't go to dance class. That Tuesday, I was sitting at work and I was training in ballet at the time. And I remember being a little exhausted with like the class I was going to. So I was like, let me see if I can find another ballet class to take tonight. I go online. I open up, you know, at the time, I guess it was like Yelp, Google, you know, just different websites to try and find a class. And I end up like searching for two hours and I end up finding nothing. I just didn't know. It was like just too much information, too many different websites. I didn't know who to sign up for, where to go. And that's when I realized that there is a major problem and information gap with classes for the world that most people in the world, even if they wanted to stick with their passions, I mean, having to even just find the class to go to was such a pain point that it was keeping away so many people from doing what they loved in their life. So that was really like that moment for me. That eureka moment. Yeah. And so what did you do with the moment? Yeah. So that was like the first moment. I started doing some market research, right? Right. So I started thinking about like, how big is this industry? Does this exist anywhere else? I did a lot of research on the open table model because it was a very similar model to open table, but for classes. And so everything I learned at Bain about how do I get smart on an industry really quickly? You know, what are the dynamics? What's the strategy? What's shifting? I did all that. And I was How do you get smart on an industry? really quickly. I mean, you research it, you Google it, there's, you Immerse know, there's all these reports that are out there, industry reports. 
And, you know, that's what I started doing. And then I started telling people about it. And I asked them if they would use something like this. Most of them said, yeah. So that's when I started feeling like, okay, there's something here. But I still had a job and I had to quit. So that was like the other big part of this. So I was home during Thanksgiving and this was 2010 and I was talking to my mom and I was telling her how I was just really sad at work. I did not want to go back to work. I just was like, ugh, this feels like such a drag. And she, by the way, had just seen me create this like amazing thing with Sa, you know, and she didn't want to see me that way because she was like, you have so much potential. What are you doing? And she told me to quit. And I didn't even really tell her that much about this new idea, but she just gave me that confidence in myself of, I believe in you. Everything you've done in your life, like I was 25 or 6 at the time, she just is like, you followed the path, right? And I had, you know, I went to a good school. I got a great job in consulting. Like, I did everything to the book. Yeah, and, and then you got all the basics now. Exactly. And, and, and she saw that what I started doing with like a little bit of my free time that I had in a dream that I had my potential just through the dance company. So I think she just was like, you're responsible. I know you're going to figure this out. It's more important for you to be happy. And so I quit which was one of the hardest things I've done in my life, I think, for anyone who's ever had to have that mm-hmm. conversation. It's more the unknown mm. of what's on the other side. That is always tough. And so the beginning of January of 2011, I quit my job. It's I like, w- I've done this now, so I've got to follow through. I yeah, can't just I talk like, about it. I've got to do it. Yeah, well, actually, one of my friends gave me this advice at the time, which was, pile, don't have a plan B. I actually think it's important. I have to always remind myself that in many times in my life because it wasn't just like stop one thing and jump to the other. I needed to take a second to just like reassess without shackles on me of like, here's what my career is. And it was really smart advice. So I went and traveled actually for two weeks and I potentially had a job offer somewhere else. Like I had a few things going. I was potentially going to go work at like Lincoln Center, which is for like the performing arts. I didn't know which way I wanted to run yet. And I got back from this trip and I went to go meet with one of my advisors and she had said something to me around, you know, well, Pyle, like, no one's going to bet on you if you don't bet on yourself. In that moment, I think, like, every part of me was like, I am ready to bet on myself, and I want to build this company. After that day, it was like the middle of February of 2011, I, like, never looked back. (laughs) She had, like, a business proposal for me, like, the morning after. I remember she always remembers that, because she's like, I didn't know if you were serious or not. (laughs) And in the morning, I, like, had sent her, like, an entire business plan of what I wanted to do. And so sometimes, like, it takes moments like that to shift you. So you wrote a business plan. Yeah. Which, by the way, like, business plans are never what you end up doing. (laughs) In hindsight, because it took us, you know, three years to kind of really get ClassFest right. I mean, at some point, I was like, what matters is getting the product right for your customer. Yeah. And once you figure that out, then obviously it's important to make sure the business plan works. But I kind of was like, you can't predict what customers are going to do. You just have to let them do it, especially when you're building a product that doesn't exist in the world. So talk us through the early days of ClassPass. You'd quit your job. Yeah. You'd written a business plan. What happened next? Who joined you? Did you do it all on your own? Did you raise money? What was the process? Yep. So I thankfully had, you know, a group of family and friends who believed in me, believed in the idea, who said they would give me some money. So I raised, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars from family and friends in the earliest days, which helped obviously just like getting things started, hiring some technical folks. My other childhood friend, he also became one of my co-founders in the earliest days. We had different strengths. And I, I always think it's better and more fun to build something 
with somebody. Mm. I don't know. It's like a, being an entrepreneur can be really lonely. Mm. And he believed in this. He was a banker. And I remember the day I told him about this idea, he just messaged me over and over again being like, how can I help? How can I invest? And so I knew he was really passionate about it as well. And then one day he just decided to quit. And so we would meet at Starbucks every morning to talk about the idea and how we were going to start aggregating these classes. And then luckily enough, like one of my advisors gave me some office space. So we started working out of her building. You mentioned advisors. Yeah. How did you get advisors in those days? Did you just approach people? I think, you know, you find the right introductions into people. I think it's who introduces you to someone is unbelievably the most important thing. It can't be like some random person. It needs to be somebody who knows you. And so this person since Anjula Acharya. She's actually from London. And she was just one of those people, I think, early on who believed in me. And I think it's like dating. You know, you have to find someone. You can't force somebody to be your mentor or advisor. It has to be someone who has the time and who believes and sees something in you that you almost don't see. Yeah, for sure. So she gave you some office space Mm -hmm. and you'd raised a few hundred thousand. Yep. And what were you going to use that money for? We were building the first version of our product, which was this open table for classes. And we hired a CTO to help build it. We spent a year building this and then we launched it. And how did you find the right CTO? Because I think Mm -hmm. there are lots of people that have an idea for an app or, you know, a tech-led business. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of, where do you start? Where did you find yours? Mine was somebody who I had known for a while. Mm -hmm. And I definitely did put out dealers into the market. Once again, it's networking. You Mm -hmm. know, it's about asking like, hey, like I want to build something. Do you know anyone? It's about making sure you've cultivated a network of people that are going to be able to help you. You can't find people in the earliest days of your startup that you found like off their resume. You know, it's like people who truly believe in the mission and the vision and who are going to sort of donate their skills to this coming to creation. So you found your CTO and he started to build this platform. Yep. How long did that take? So it took us about a year and we actually got into this incubator program called Techstars in New York City where only 15 companies out of 1,700 got in. Wow, amazing. Um, So that was like a great moment for us. But at the end of it, when we launched, no one used our product. And that was a huge problem because we had spent a lot of money building it, had all this press, we had investors in interested in us. How do you got all this press? Because we launched on Demo Day. Okay. So, you know, they were people were doing roundups of these Demo Day companies that were happening. People were like, oh, female founder, let's tell the story. Like there was a story, right? There's a story obviously behind our company that was easy to have told, but we were missing the key thing, which was people actually going to class. Mm. And that was actually one of like the hardest moments for me as a founder. But I think everything that happened after that is the reason we exist today. And I realized that we still have money in the bank and this was just the wrong product. And so we can't sit here and try to make something that doesn't work, work, you know, and just sit here and wait for it to start. It was about, okay, let's make some hard decisions. So at that time we were maybe around, you know, seven, eight people. We had kind of, the team had gotten bigger, decided to downsize back to like three people. We changed offices, got into a much smaller office. We went heads down for a year. Why was it the wrong product? People didn't want to go to class just individually. So it was like we had missed building a value proposition for people. This was just a search engine for classes. Product number one is a search engine for classes. Exactly. It was very similar to OpenTable. It would mean like you would go on and be like, I'm looking for a yoga class in... I mean, we still have that in class 
prospects today. It's just bundled in a much different value proposition for people. Yeah. So the technology was still the same, if that makes sense. But there was no value proposition. It was a transactional website of go look for class. What we had fundamentally missed is that most people, they have a lot of fear and aren't motivated to just go to class on the drop of a dime like that. They aren't just opening up an app every day to be like, where can I go to class? They still needed the motivation to actually go and we needed to build a better value proposition for them. Okay. So then we started looking into building passes. So right. it was not exactly even yet class pass. What it was, was it called at this point? This was called Classtivity. So that was the search engine. Then we launched the Classtivity Passport, which was this one month pass for people to go and explore different classes in their areas. But it was one month. And then we thought people would just find their favorite studio and commit. And then, you know, eventually we would take a cut of the long-term revenue of that. Sure. So this at least starts working, this like one month pass. People seem excited about it. We've got some great studios on it. We figured out like how to actually drive reservations. We had some great revenue because we were actually making 100% profit off of this because the studio owners gave us these classes for free because most of them offer complimentary first class free. So we do that. We have this product in the market for about six months. And then we realize people aren't going back to these studios, right? So the whole promise and the partnership was built upon the recruitment idea right, of a long-term client. I mean, our whole business model was based on that. And that was like an eye-opening moment. What we had learned, though, once again, I don't like to call that a failure because I learned the most important thing, which was that people loved variety. Uh They loved it so much that they started frauding us in the sense of (laughs) they were buying a passport over and over again with different email addresses Ah. so they could do the one month again. So we did the survey and we asked all of our members, hey, you know, if you could do this again, like month over month, how many of you would like to do it? And 95% of them said they would do that. Wow. So that's when we realized we were a subscription. Exactly. And so this is June of 2013. So, you know, about two and a half years in and we had just figured out what the product was. You just really hit the jackpot. And up until this point... Had you raised any further money? How were you funding the business? Were you making any money? We were not making any money at the time. We weren't transacting revenue. The passport gave us a little bit of profit at the time, but it wasn't enough. So I ended up doing like a bridge round of a convertible note with some investors who helped me get through this harder time. And I think this is why it's so important to have people who truly are invested in you because we were at this critical moment. I actually remember... When we launched ClassPass, I almost ran out of money at that time. And if I didn't raise this bridge round, I mean, we wouldn't be here today because we would have run out of cash, you know? So it was like these interesting moments where you have to learn how to get the cash in the door, plus run your business, yeah. make sure you're fighting through every day. Yeah. So June 2013, you said, mm-hmm. and you realized, okay, we're a subscription business. Yep. Well, actually, we fully didn't realize that at the time. We actually had three products in the market, which is also a bad idea for any entrepreneur who's out there. <laughs> too, too many. It's too many, you know. And I had an advisor tell me, like, Pyle, like, the passport is, like, cracked to you guys. You, you know, this will be a chapter in your book one day. And it's so hard, though, when you're a founder and you build these products and you know, even the search engine, my CTO was like, this is a beautiful product. We should keep it up. Like maybe people who don't want to do the subscription will do this. But at the end of the day, we had to really focus. So in the following March of 2014, we finally shut down the other two products and renamed our business to ClassPass. And who came up with the name ClassPass? I mean, we'd always called the product ClassPass. So it was called the Classtivity ClassPass. So when we were selling it to people, we went from Classtivity Passport to buy the Classtivity ClassPass. I mean, that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. I won't repeat that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
And so at some point, it was a class pass. And then, such a good name. Yeah. And luckily, I mean, we got the domain, we got the handles. It was one of those like amazing moments where everything worked out. And then we threw our launch party to change your name. And we had about a thousand customers in New York City at the time. And we invited all of them to our launch <laughs> party. I always remember that day. And they came? Yeah. A lot of them came. And they brought friends. <laughs> so that was March 2014. You had yeah. a thousand customers. How did you grow the customer base? So the next big thing we did was, and this was something that, you know, we had raised a bit more capital. So we raised $2 million of a seed round at the time. Mm -hmm. And the next big bet was, can this work in other cities, right? We were just in New York at the time. And that's a, that was a big question for us. It was a big question for our investors. And so we took the next pass to Boston and we launched it and we saw the same exact growth in that market. And just to be clear, at this point, this is pay X amount a month and get unlimited classes. It was actually 99 for 10 classes. Okay. So you went Boston. Yep. We go to Boston and we're selling class pass. We see the same exact trajectory. So we decide that we're going to go to a few more cities. And at that time we decide to go raise our series A. And this was actually always an interesting moment for me as a founder, because I went out to Silicon Valley again, you know, Sand Hill Road. This is like the infamous road where all the VCs are. It looks like dentist office for anyone <laughs> who's never been there. You know, you say they look like dentists. You have appointments with all these different VCs. You turn up with a pitch doc and you fire away. How long do you have with them? You have about an hour. How many of them? It can range. Usually you find like one person who you get the intro with. And so it depends if you're doing like the Monday meetings. So the Monday meetings are like the partner meetings where it's all the partners of the firm. And so what you always want to do is earn the right to present at a partner meeting. Right. So if they've liked what you've sent them so far, they've seen you, you exactly. get the Monday gig. And usually you meet with like one person in, who's a part of the partnership and you've built the relationship. Okay. And then that person becomes like your champion to get you to this partner okay. meeting on Monday. Because at the end of the day, everyone has to say yes. So you go to these partner meetings, usually on a Monday. It's like a big show. <laughs> you know, you have to go through your market size, your product, you know, everything you know about your customer base and your business model. And they ask you questions about, you know, all the things that could happen with your business. And you have to really be on top of your numbers. You got the Monday slot. <laughs> so this is why I want to rewind a little because I had gone two years before. and no Friday, one, 4 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, one, one no, one really, no one would respond to me. You know, it was one of those things where I would have meetings and people would be like, great. Yeah. Okay. And one of my advisors told me, you know, when they're interested, they call you within 30 minutes. I'm like, are you sure? Like they won't message me the next day. You know, think about it. It's like dating. You're like, why didn't anyone yeah. message me back? And so it was hard. But then this time we had this like rocket ship growth, like exponential chart of revenue growth. We were opening more cities. And so everyone wanted me to come to their Monday meetings. I was like, you know, people were just like, Pyle, when can you meet? I want to like hear you more about the You were the hot business. ticket in yeah. the VC and, world. But it was actually really eye-opening because I also didn't trust it. I was like, I've been here saying the same thing, same mission, same vision. And I always think back to like, you know, I think it is harder for females a little bit because I was like, I had to prove something higher and more than other people did. Sure. But I ended up actually at the time taking money then from someone I had known and that I had trusted because, you know, when you find people who give you money, it's like marriage. It's like someone who is going to be there with you every single day through some of the hardest moments of your business and the most amazing. And you want to make sure that they're in it and they have like the same vision and mission decision making as you. So I ended up taking money from someone I trusted and we raised $12 million. And this is your this series time. A. This is our series A. And we did that so we could launch even in more cities across the US. And we started then seeing a ton of competition. So a lot of people were copying our business model. And so that was another whole like phase of the company where 
where we had to take people out. You know, it was like one of those things where we knew that the market had to be ours. And to take them out, that's legal action? That's acquisition? No, I mean, it was really like feet on the street, you know, figure out ways to sell the proposition better to our customers, sell it better to our partners, make sure that they understood who we were, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that was really like the crux of it. It was all about getting there before someone else did. And so we ended up hiring about 60 people in a matter of two months. Wow. And we're still in 2014. Yeah. We launched 20 cities by the first of the following year. Wow. We called it like Operation 2015. I was going to say 2014 was a busy year. And that growth, did the growth come from the cities or did it come from the gyms? So for anyone who's been sort of in the jungle for the last five years, ClassPass allows gyms to sell their inventory to people that aren't members. Yes. So that that non-members can access it via ClassPass. So ClassPass is a membership in itself. It lets people access all these classes from, you know, the best boutique studios in your area and gyms. You could do like spinning classes, yoga classes, dance classes. But you don't have to be a member of that. You don't have to be a member of, yeah, but you have to be a member of ClassPass. So it clears all their inventory, plus it's great for recruitment, etc. But was the growth down to getting great gyms on board or was it down to the cities, both? It was a combination. Like, I mean, we had a whole playbook. You know, there's a density issue in the sense of like making sure you have enough density, right? So make sure that it's a good product that where people could have variety. You had to make sure you had some of the big enough names so it's like a valuable product and people would want to give it a try. But at the end of the day, it came down to word of mouth in the sense of like, it was a friend being like, I just signed up for this thing. We had on average every customer tell five friends about it. Wow. And And did you incentivize them to do that? You know, in the beginning, we didn't. We just literally, it was one of those things where people wanted to bring their friends to class. Over time, we have now, you know, built it into our our referral program. We have an amazing referral program. But it was one of those things where people were naturally doing it on their own anyway. And so we were seeing this exponential growth without spending any money on marketing. It was happening organically. So it was, we were seeing that in every city we launched in using, you know, as you mentioned, like our partners were really important. It was making sure we had the right partners on board. The partners being the gyms. Yes. And how hard was it to get them on board in the early days? Who were the big names where you got them on board and you were like, whoa, we got... Yeah. I I mean, there there were so many. And I think back to the earliest days. I mean, we would literally go to like three, four classes a day because we wanted to try all these studios, the classes at them. We wanted to meet the instructors, meet the teachers, meet the owners. And I think what we realized, though, is, you know, many of them operate at only 30 to 35 percent capacity, which means they have so much underutilized capacity. They are fixed cost businesses. Yeah. 30 to 35 percent. Yeah. And they have fixed cost businesses. Right. And so getting someone else in the door is really important to them. And we literally were lead gen. We had a new way of getting people in the door. And so a lot of them were excited. But initially, there must have been some of them who were like, we can't possibly be associated with something like that. Of course, there's always like people being like, oh, I want to do this on my own, you know, and I don't want to piss off my members and not let them have access. And yeah, you know, but the thing is, even for that, we were always really careful about making sure we had the right inventory on the platform. You know, now we actually have all the premium spots on there because we've built a great enough algorithm where we're not cannibalizing. And it's it's so real time that we can see it and we have enough data. But in the earliest days, like, we would work with the studio owners to be like, can we look at historical data to come up with a better way? Because we didn't want to bulldoze your loyalists out of their spots that they like to go to. So we worked with them really well to build that. And you said that marketing kind of just happened mm-hmm. by word of mouth in the early days. 
as time's gone on, you said you've got a referral program in mm-hmm. place. What other marketing activities that you've turned on have been really successful for you? And I think as a company grows, you have to continue to think about ways to spread the love of what your product is. I mean, once again, organic has actually been our biggest and our largest. And we're so thankful that our customers love us that much that, and they want to share it with others. But we've also tried like Facebook marketing, Instagram marketing. I mean, I think there's so many channels out there today. It's really about diversifying and making sure that you spread your portfolio out enough to know where your customers are going to come from. But at the end of the day, it's all about more figuring out the messaging than it is even the channels, right? And no amount of marketing can sell a product that doesn't work. And I actually didn't know this because I did this sort of in a way from failure. And when I think about how viral ClassPass was, that's a good product. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to have to spend money in the early days of a product. There aren't too many amazing products that no one's heard of, are there? Yeah, I mean, there is room in the market for more products like that. But I think your customers should be your like number one marketing channel in the beginning. If it's because you have to spend like a lot of money to get your first customer and that that first customer isn't telling customers or number two. Some business models work that way. I just think, especially when it's a consumer product and you want to build a large scale business, having that virality, it's really core to the marketing strategy and you can't force it. There's nothing you can do unless the product works. No one is going to share a product with other people that they authentically don't believe in. And so I think it's really important to build a good product. And you're in so many different cities. In terms of marketing activity, have you looked at it on a local level for events? Yep. Yeah. I mean, we have to. I mean, every market is so different for us. And even as we now are launching internationally, I mean, it's really actually figuring out like the types of inventory that really work in every city because people do different things. There's different habits. You know, I think here in London, people love strength training. You know, I was going to say, so tell me what here is strength training. Strength training. And we know that people in London like to work out more after work. Right. In the States, it's more before work. Fascinating. uh, Yeah. It makes us know what inventory to focus on, you know, and things like that. And in terms of marketing, I think it's really about helping people understand like the local value of what it can bring. Because sometimes when you talk about a product that's like, oh, we have thousands of studios, like it's actually no, like open the app and realize like there is a yoga studio literally within walking distance of you. And most people don't know that, you know, and there's a Pilates class right next door. You think they're so far away when they're right there and it makes it so much easier to just walk in the door. And for us, it's been about, you know, how do we share that experience out there? And how much has social media been key to your success? I would peg it on like this whole idea of ambassadors and influencers, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's tied to the virality of the product. But even in the beginning, we would give bloggers and influencers class pass credits and they would use it and then share their stories. With and that's people. worked out well. Yeah. What about you? How much do you have to put yourself out there? I'm always interested. You know, some people are very happy to be in the public eye. Others aren't. It feels like it comes naturally to you. Do you feel like you've been a real asset to the marketing activity that's gone on? I think, you know, as I have built this company and then like taken on this role even more to even be like... Like the spokesperson for my company, I think about it in the sense of like, how do I think about inspiring other women to build good businesses as well as being able to sell my product, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's about making sure that people understand where we come from, you know, and especially we've had a lot of copycats that look just like us, you know, but aren't us. And at the end of the day, Class was founded on a truthful mission mm-hmm. and like a real life experience. I mean, those three years of blood, sweat and tears are came from a place of I want to figure this out because I want the world to have what I have have in dance, right? I want 
want everyone to experience that in their side of the world. It's so important to get that message out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm not somebody who like totally enjoys the public eye, if that makes sense. But I'm a really mission-oriented person. Yeah, and it, so. and it gives you authenticity. That overused word, but it's effective, doesn't yeah, it? It gives you that authenticity yeah, exactly. versus your And I think like the more we see diverse women leaders, I didn't have anyone who looked like me growing up to really look up to, you know, and I think I've learned that too, you know, like as much as I can hopefully inspire people to take those leaps on times where it's been hard. And I think for me, it's like also finding other entrepreneurs I look up to as well. And talk to me about international expansion. I mean, the States mm -hmm. must feel like you're international when you're working across the States. It's so huge. But coming over here, where else in the world are you? London and actually was our first outside the US country. Was it? Yeah. And so we came here in 2015. Okay. I actually remember exactly the day we came here. We had had a, our first team meeting, like it was about 100 employees. We had just announced we raised our $40 million Series B. It was January. Wow. It was right after we did like the 20 cities in 15. We were like, that's it. We have to go to London. Okay. I remember like literally that party was over and me and my co-founders got on a plane to London and we all came here and then we all split up and everyone had a list of 15 studios <laughs> to right. go to. And we literally went and did that over three days. We so, all okay. went to all the classes, tried to sign up as many studios as possible. And then we launched here. You just walk in there. Did you have appointments? Yeah, we would call folks. We would want to definitely be able to talk to the owner. I think it, that was like important to us. And sometimes the owners are teaching classes too, yeah, which is yeah. really great. You know, because at the end of the day, we wanted them to know, like we weren't coming here to have a business meeting per se. Like we truly enjoy going to class. <laughs> like our entire office is full of girls who wear Lululemon well, all day long. Well, it would be long. a shame <laughs> if they didn't, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So London, you nailed London. That was 2015. Where next? I think we did Toronto then and then we did Australia. We kind of then, went and focused on our business model a bit more. So we had launched all these cities. At the time also had like had some different pricing plans out there. We actually only had one product out in the market at the time. So we decided that we needed to diversify our plans a so bit more. So you now more. have three, don't you? Three yeah. different levels. Three different plans. Exactly. So you pay so a different amount every month and you get access to a different, different number amount of classes. of classes. Exactly. Or credits, which then transpire okay. into the Makes classes. Sense. So we needed to find a way to have different plans because, uh -huh. you know, it wasn't like one size fits all. And so we had to diversify in our plans. So we kind of spent the past like year or two really focusing in on fixing the plans, making sure the business model worked. And now we're once again back into massive geographic expansion. We're launching 50 new cities this year. We're in 15 countries as of now. We have just launched here in the UK. We're in five different cities. So we're in Edinburgh, Bristol, Brighton, Manchester, and London. Wow, incredible. And how have you coped with such rapid expansion? The team must be vast. How many people work for We are at 400. How have you adapted to such rapid growth? It's a great question. And I think, you know, we've gone through scales of hyper growth and then we went to through optimization phases and then hyper growth again. And I think through every phase, like you have different types of employees and different types of people who are at your company. And I think it's a matter of making sure you hire really well. I've learned that hiring is the most important thing you can do. Everything you will achieve in your company comes down to people. What advice are getting that right? Find people who are mission driven, who are there for the right reason. And I think actually one of the things that we learned to do was hire people who were class bus members. Like we would literally recruit from our member base because they were people who are like, this product changed my life. Like I want to help anyone 
else in the world have this product. I don't compromise on culture. So if you find someone who has like the best skill in the world, but they're not a culture fit, it's not worth it because Mm -hmm. that will completely ruin the rest of the culture that you have. And the other thing is, I think I've learned is you can't over prescribe culture on people. So in the sense of the people you hire are your culture, right? And I think sometimes people want to go top down with the culture. And I do believe as a leader, you're representing what you want your culture to be. But at the end of the day, it's the people in your company who create your culture. So you can't over prescribe it too much. And what kind of leader are you? Top down? Start Um, with you. So I kind of go back and forth. This is once again, like going back to the earlier conversation we were having. I know how to be big picture because I've been at places like Bain. But then I also know how to like get in there in the weeds of wanting to do every little piece of it. I think as your company grows, you learn to like, you can't do the weeds as much anymore. I mean, that's why you have a team, right? To do it. So I've learned to really figure out how I get people to work at the same pace I want to work or inspire people to work towards the same thing I want do but you kind of do have to be more big picture especially as you have 400 employees quite and the last fundraising you mentioned in this interview was series b 40 million dollars yeah have you done subsequent rounds absolutely we have now raised over 255 million dollars as a company so we just did our series d which was actually 80 million dollars last year which was really to do more rapid geographic expansion Um, We're also focusing on some new inventory. So in New York City, for example, we just started launching wellness inventory so people can get facials and cryo. Surely um, that comes next. Yeah. I mean, you know, the vision of the company while we started in boutique fitness, at least the class pass version of it, Classivity actually started with (laughs) creative classes and active classes on there, but we decided to focus. What we really want to do is help people live an inspired life by connecting them to what we call soul nurturing experiences. When I say soul nurturing, and it took us a really long time to figure I out like what that it. word is because I didn't want to just, you know, have a bunch of things that you could book on ClassPass just because they were like bookable things. I wanted them to be experiences that if someone had, they would feel thankful that they booked that time. Like we call it me time, right? Yeah. And I'm so with you. I don't want to force people into doing obligations. I'm not trying to be like, oh, get your groceries, you know, unless if it's like a grocery shopping experience, you know, that's really our mission. It's really about spending your time wisely. Our vision statement is every life fully lived. I like that. Yeah. You know, and that's what we do as a company. Like the people who use ClassPass, they come to us and they tell us about the transformation that happened in their life mentally emotionally and physically and that to me is like the best thing you can give somebody is that transformation it is just part of lifestyle now isn't it exactly what's your role in the business now so after these many many fundraising and many employees yeah you are today i'm the executive chairman of the company so i swap roles with my executive chairman who was actually the person who led my seed round my two million dollar round and my series a okay so he's been a partner to me in the business you know there comes a point i think for every founding CEO where you realize like what you start doing every day completely has changed. And I started feeling like the CEO role was like super constraining for me as just a founder. And for me, like the number one thing, whenever I feel like that, I'm like, people are the answer to this. And I had an amazing partner with Fritz. So I was like, you need to be running the business every day. (laughs) And I want to make sure that I'm thinking about the future of where we're going and how we're, you know, building towards this product expansion, thinking through geographic expansion, really thinking about the sort of bigger picture ideas in partnership, obviously, with him. But it's a very different thing when you're managing people all day. And we had a large amount of employees at this point. It's just a different role. What do you think your biggest skills are? Why are you here? Why have you had such success? Oh, wow. What is it that's in you? A strong mother, clearly. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a super passionate person in the sense of when I care about something, I will put 150% into it. And by the way, when I don't care about something, I put like zero into it. I just don't waste energy on things I don't care about. So I think just like knowing what I'm passionate about and going after it, I think I have a lot of perseverance, which I probably got through dance (laughs) because you learn through failure and through, you know, falling down many times to get back up. I just will continue to push until I'm there. And if I said I was going to do something, I will make sure I do it. And that's just the way I was raised and how I work. Um, what does success look like for you for class pass? I mean, God, you've had it valued at half a billion US dollars. If that's not success, I don't know what is. But you know, do you see yourself with a business in the long term? To me, like success is a journey, you know, and I don't believe there's an end point at all. And I remember celebrating the first reservation we had, and that felt like success, right? And I think it's a matter of making sure you're finding the little success that happens throughout the entire journey. And at the same time, whenever that would happen, something bad would happen too, right? And it's a part of the journey. Like, I don't think it's ever rose-colored glasses every single day. There's always, like, behind you're like, okay, we still have to figure this out. Like, you know, and I think that's the beauty of it. And I think as an entrepreneur, you have to learn to love that lifestyle a little bit. But I think for me, you know, we have a really big mission and vision and we're only a little bit of the way there. So there's still a lot more to do. There's a lot more hours of people's lives that we can touch. (laughs) A lot more blood, sweat and tears. For entrepreneurs listening or for women wanting to become entrepreneurs and listening, what advice would you give them? To not doubt yourself. I think I've realized that along the way. There's so many reasons we could doubt ourselves. It's so important to just believe you deserve it because you do. Wow. What a story. What a journey. Incredible. We are obviously all huge fans of Class Pass. Who isn't? And we very much look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you so much. I've loved chatting to you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. We'll be back soon. (laughs) Bye-bye.